At Woodside Bible Church, we gather weekly to pursue God by studying His Word together. How can Christians find the motivation necessary to overcome the challenges of our modern culture and continue the mission that God has called us to? In Revelation, All Things New, we'll discover a glorious description of the end of all things and the great kingdom to come. It's here we find motivation for our present challenges. Join us as we look to the end and find hope and strength for our mission in the present. Good morning. We're just under 11 weeks away. I know the summer has not even started officially, but we are 11 we- less than 11 weeks away from the start of college football. Anybody happy about that? Some of you are still in NBA world, right? Not even done yet. The schedules have been finalized now. There's some hubbub around who's playing who and where and what's not happening. The analysts are making their predictions. There are scouting and recruiting reports. There's all sorts of news we can expect fully in the next 11 weeks and beyond that the smack talking between the teams will only amp up, especially for in-state rivalries. There is the hope of victory for your team. There is the tension when your team is not performing like you think they should or the coach is not playing, not, not doing good play calls or when the team isn't executing on the field. There's also the sobering reality of, a, of an injury that you didn't see coming or maybe it's your rival that just smacked you and you lost. But who gets the last word at every game? What is the only word that matters? The scoreboard, right? Win or loss. Is it a W or an L? The, the only thing that really matters at the end of the day in terms of who progresses on toward the championship is if you have a win. The scoreboard tells the true story. This morning, we're continuing our series through Revelation. We've called it All Things New, and it is showing us a picture of what is to come that was revealed to the Apostle John so that we would know what to expect. It's an apt description, All Things New, because that's exactly what God is doing throughout the book. He is in the business of recreation. He created the world to be perfect, and it was marred, right? It was marred by all sorts of sin and evil and death and destruction. And so he's in the process. That's the story of the gospel, and it's the story of what is still to come. He's in the process of recreating and setting things new again. And in order for God to really make all things new, he's got to undo a lot of things that have happened, the things that have marred his creation, the forces of evil that have wrought tragedy after tragedy in human history and continues to this day. And despite all the damage that's been done, despite all the twists and the turns in our lives, the unexpected, the awful, the painful, just like the scoreboard, at the end of the game, God gets the final word over sin and evil. That's the main idea today, is that God gets the final word on sin and evil. And this is immensely helpful for those of us who follow Christ, for the believers who received this letter 2,000 years ago. John was writing to them because they were experiencing persecution and struggle and pressure from their culture. He also was suffering, remember? Because of his witness for Christ, they exiled him to an island prison 
And they said, well, that'll shut him up. No. (laughs) The Holy Spirit met him there, gave him all sorts of visions of things to come. Thankfully, he was able to write them down, and they're preserved for the benefit of the church, the seven churches at the beginning of Revelation, and then also for our benefit. So it was written to them, and it's for our benefit today. And he called them to press on, these believers, press on in the midst of your struggle and your difficulty. Listen to the series of prophetic visions that the Spirit has given me of what's to come. Press on. Have hope. Be encouraged. One of the recurring threads that is woven throughout this book, and that I especially felt this week in my preparation, there's a tension here. Because for believers who just are longing for what is to come, there is the hope of victory, where God is explaining specifically what's going to happen, what he's going to do. So there is the victory, but it's also in in tension with the, the soberness that is to come. I think it's important to recognize both and to actually let them inform our application of this text, not just to read it as a narrative, but what are we supposed to do in light of it? That's all of scripture for us. So today, as Pastor Jacob has read, we're picking up where we left off last week, which he was unpacking the fact that the the devil had been bound. Jesus is ruling and reigning on earth for an appointed time. But we're going to witness today the finished work of God's judgment against these powers of darkness. And he will speak the last word against the forces of evil in three key ways. First of all, the defeat of Satan. Second of all, the judgment of sin. And third, he's going to destroy death itself. So we've already read it, but let's pick up some of these verses and track along with me so that we understand what John has for us today. Verse 7, and when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. Now, this is not a shocker that, oh, no, what's gone wrong? Satan is out. He got out of prison. This is not a a bust out. This is predicted at the beginning of 20. He was only going to be bound for a time. And now that he is out of prison, he's gone back to his ways of deception. His prison time was not one of reform. I mean, isn't that the goal of, of a prison sentence, is that maybe you would change your ways? Well, the devil has not changed his ways. He's gone right back to his deception, his deceit, and he, he, he's not going to because that's just who, who he is. And so Satan heads to the four corners of the earth, which is another way of saying, because there aren't corners, but he, he's going to leave no stone unturned. He's going to deceive the nations, the myriad of people who are on the earth. He is out to deceive them. And he's going to gather these nations as an army and to lead them to battle against God and the saints, God and his people. Now, John indicates that these deceived nations were like the sand of the seashore, so Satan's pretty good in his attack and his recruitment. It's innumerous. Uh, innumerable, the, the, the people that he recruits into his army. He refers to them as Gog and Magog. Maybe you don't know about those nations. They're not on the map right now. Well, they were on the map 
to God's people, and we read about them, especially in Ezekiel 38 and 39, these nations that oppressed God's people. And so John is referring back to them as a, as a bit of a picture to say these are collective nations gathered with the devil against God and against his people. Pick up verse 9 with me. They marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so you've got this multitude that's marching to battle. It requires the broad plain of the earth because they were so big. And they're traveling. And where are they headed? Right? What's their target? The camp of the beloved, uh, excuse me, the camp of the saints and the beloved city. So they're marching up. We believe it's a reference to Jerusalem because you would approach Jerusalem by going up. Jerusalem or, or God's people will be surrounded by this army. But before they can even get started on the battle, God delivers a decisive blow by destroying the enemies that have come against him and his people. Fire has rained down from heaven. A commentator I read this week said that John thinks of the power of God as so overwhelming that there cannot even be the appearance of a battle when he wills to destroy evil. Boom! Gone are the enemies. And do you notice what the text does not say? Who's, who's missing here from, from the battle? Well, it doesn't actually say that the saints of God do anything. Right? They don't necessarily have any part to play, so, so far as we can tell, they don't do anything because this is a decisive, sovereign, one-sided act of God where he moves and destroys his enemies. First, the destruction of his foes, the, the enemies, the deceived nations, and then the devil himself. Verse 10 tells us about this. It's like God is saying, enough is enough, devil. You're done. He is cast along with the beast and the false, false prophet where they already are. He is cast into the lake of fire. And truthfully, verse 10 is the last time in scripture that he is ever mentioned again. Can I get a hallelujah? That's good news. He is defeated. He is done away with. The one who has brought so much harm to this world is done. Shortly after I graduated from college, I went with uh, a buddy back to his hometown. We were at his parents' house. I think it was like a second reception for his, for his brother whom I knew, a, a wedding reception in his hometown. And so we drove out there, and we were there for a long weekend, Labor Day weekend, and I, um, we were killing time before the reception that evening, and near their home was a horse racetrack and a casino. And so we went there. We killed time. People watching is always interesting at places like that. I'd never seen horse races before. And so at one point, we got thirsty. We walked into the casino, and we ordered a drink. And so we're waiting for our soft drinks while they're, they're getting them ready for us. And I remember watching this lady who was perched on a stool in front of a slot machine. She'd pull it wait for the things to come up on the screen, take a sip of whatever she was drinking, pull it again. Same thing over and over. I, I, I lose track of how many times she pulled it 
And then we got our Coke and we, we went out and we're watching the races. And I mentioned something to my friend about, about this. I, I asked a question and he said, well, she was actually having a really bad day. <laughs> uh, every time, if I remember, this is just over 20 years ago. If I remember correctly, every time she pulled that, it was like a $15 investment, right? So she's spending $15 every time she pulled it. And I don't know how many times she pulled it just while I was waiting there. And it made me want to go back to her because I wasn't even making $15 an hour at the time 20 years ago. It made me want to go back to her and say, are you nuts? Stop. The house always wins. What are you doing? You're pouring money down the drain. At least give it to me, right? So she, she's just so entranced and just pulling the lever over and over and over again. I just wanted to say, get out of there. Don't you see what you're doing? We live in a world that is entranced and deceived by the devil. In our uh, particular uh, world that, that, that um, you know, you turn on the news and you just see the effects of it, right? It's just bad news. And, and you don't even have to turn on the news because we live with it, right? It's, it's, it's not only around us, it's actually firsthand experience for us. Addiction, lust, lies of hurry and worry and busyness, anger, fear, stress, letting go of the past, carrying guilt and shame, carrying the burden of what happened to us, broken relationships, broken marriages. I mean, all of this legitimately would be felt by each and every person in this room, something on that list or something that you feel the effects of sin and evil in your own life. The devil is a master of deception and he has paid attention to human nature for millennia to know what levers to pull and how to deceive. He's very effective. However, because that's pretty bad news, right? However, the Bible talks about the power of sin and evil being broken at the cross. So when we trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, when we put our faith in him, he begins the work of making all things new. Renewal happens. We are new creations in Christ, Scripture talks about. He gives us a new heart, and he sets us free from the bondage, not the presence but he sets us free from the bondage, the power of sin in our lives. And he gives us the great blessing of a new way to see the world around us. And that's the process of sanctification, of growing to become more like Jesus, is seeing the world and sin and ourselves and the gospel for what it truly is. And the ultimate victory that we really long for deep within our souls, which is why Revelation speaks so much to this, is the eradication of evil of freedom, of God's goodness, of what's coming. So rejoice in the victory. If you put your faith and trust in Christ, rejoice in his victory. Persevere, right? Remember the message for the believers receiving this letter. Stand firm, persevere. Remember that Christ wins at the end of the day. The devil will be destroyed. He'll just be put away. We'll never hear about him again. We'll never, we'll never wonder, is he coming to have his work. God seeks to encourage Christians through Revelation 20 at the coming defeat of his enemy. But he also tells us all of this as, a, as an invitation to mission, to live with purpose. We know that the devil has been working, is working, and will continue to the time of Revelation 20. 
And just like that lady at the slot machine is entranced, she's just lulled. That's what Satan continues doing. Luring, confusing, deceiving, drawing people in to their spiritual death. So long as we have breath in our lungs, so long as we have that, let us live as credible witnesses of the good news and the life-changing truth of the gospel. And may Jesus get many redemptive victories through our lives for his glory in the way that we live and speak. So first, God deals with the forces of evil by defeating Satan. Then second, look at verse 11, and we see the judgment of sin. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. So John is describing a distinct throne of judgment. He's talked about other thrones in the book of Revelation, but this is the only time that he puts descriptors on it. He calls it great. So that's the idea of this divine power. He calls it white, which is a way of, of calling out God's righteousness and purity and holiness that even flows from his throne because he is on it. It is the throne of ultimate authority, and it is fitting for the one who is seated on the throne. And John talked about the earth and sky fleeing, so he's describing that the majesty and the glory of God is so terrible, it's so overwhelming that even the earth and the sky want to get out of Dodge. They just want to flee, and there's no place for them to go. It is so awe-inspiring. You can say the word awesome here. This speaks to God's infinite authority. Nothing escapes his gaze. It is terrible. It is terrible in the best sense. And verse 12, John continues, I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Verse 13, and the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So elsewhere in Revelation, John gives us pictures of heavenly worship around the throne, right? Angels and saints, heavenly beings who are worshiping God. This is not that picture. This is a picture of judgment before God. It is a moment of judgment as the dead stand before him. And John describes them as great and small. Great and small. So in other words, people of immense wealth and people with nothing, poverty. People of immense fame. They are so famous. And people, we don't even know their name. People who have great intelligence and people who have very little or no intelligence. All are standing before the throne, regardless of differences in life. They're at the same level before the great white throne. Verse 13 referenced the sea and death and Hades giving up their dead. 
we don't have time to unpack it, but in ancient Jewish writing, that would mean something that essentially means no one is exempt. No one is exempt from, from this judgment. And notice in verse 12, I mentioned books. Now, there are two types of books. There's books of works, and there's a book of life. So the first books were a record of people's activity in life, right? Their, their works while they were alive. And throughout Scripture, it tells us that mankind will be judged by their works, their words, and the secret motivations of their heart. Now, last week, I stepped in to referee a moment with my kids. One had done something to another, probably in retaliation for something else, and it escalated. And I had to step in and figure some things out. Now, truth be told, I saw something out of the corner of my eye. But I wasn't watching everything. I certainly heard the result of their provocation, but I didn't see everything. And furthermore, I can't climb in their brains and their hearts and figure out what was motivating this, right? So I had to do the best I could. I had to work through, okay, this is, we're having a discussion here, right? Discussion, borderline argument. And I was seeking to correct what I perceived as wrong and establish some boundaries. That's the life of a parent. And to be honest, it's the life for all of us in terms of our assumptions. We do the best we can, but we don't know people's hearts. We don't know their minds. Occasionally, we hear their words or we see their actions, but we don't know. That is not true when it comes to God. Because John is saying clearly here, he knows all, he sees all, he records all. His judgment, when it is rendered, is first of all fully informed, and second of all, it is just. Look at verse 15. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we've talked about the first kind of books, right? The first category, book of works. And now we talk about the book of life, which is not a record of deeds, but a record of names. A record of names. In another place, in chapter 21, John calls the same book the Lamb's book of life. And so the explanation there, the Lamb, of course, is Jesus, who died on the cross as a lamb, like a, a sacrifice or a substitute, just like Jews would have done in their sacrifices. So the names written in the Lamb's book of life are the ones who have benefited from Christ's sacrifice, the atonement, who have put their faith and trust in Jesus and received salvation because of his work on the cross. And so what we learn about this book, though, is that the names... Names that are not appearing in the book. So it's got names, but if they're missing from that book, despite a person's earthly societal status, despite what they've done, the good works that they've done, they receive eternal punishment of being cast into the lake of fire. So that means you could live as the model parent, as the model employee, the kindest person in your subdivision, 
lots of good works. You're the type of person who doesn't even step on a spider. You pick them up with a Kleenex and you like send them outside. You're just that kind of person. You could live that kind of life or you could be a terrible person, a serial killer, whatever, whatever the case may be. But contrary to this divine scales idea that we have in our culture, that's not what John is saying is present on that day. The only thing that matters on that day is whether your name is in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. In our culture, one of the highest values, whether it's stated or not, is this idea of the American dream. We are conditioned, because this is the water we swim in, we are conditioned to work harder, we're conditioned to work longer, to achieve, to accumulate, to find success, to be self-sufficient, right? On and on and on and on. Now, with the face value, a lot of these things are not evil. It's not sinful to care for your family, to work hard, to be able to provide for them. Scripture calls us to not be sloths or sluggards. What a great word. Sluggards. Don't be lazy. So at face value, there's some good in all of this stuff. But the, the deceitful, trickiness, brilliant move of the devil, if you're trying to confuse people, is to all of a sudden get them to think, you know, it is true. The more I work, the more money I have. I feel a little better about myself. Man, I'm a better person because this, this new car, it smells new. I love new car smell. I'm just a better person because I've got this. I'm a better person because I'm more successful. I'm more famous. And this is the effective lie of the enemy, that we can kind of be masters of our own fate. We can make it work because this is America. We can pull ourselves up. We can do this. And yet that's not at all what John is saying here. It's not true. He is starkly showing how the great and the small are on even playing field. They stand equally before this throne of judgment. Whether you have a name that people write about, your name is on a building or a road sign. I mean, you're somebody that we study and that we remember. It doesn't matter. The only thing that matters is that your name is in the book of life, which means you have placed your faith and trust in Christ. Each one must appear before this throne. And so here's the sobering truth for us. There are two ways for your sin to be judged. Two ways. The first is at this great white throne where there is divine scrutiny. I mean, clearly they're looking in the books, right? What did this person do? So there is scrutiny for the way that you've lived. But works don't tip the scale. Because at the end of the day, what has the final say? Your name is in the book of life. That's the final determining factor. John is not saying salvation by works. That's not what this passage is about. Rather, judgment and punishment comes to you if your name is not in this book. Despite how good of a life you've lived, how kind you are, it's not enough. And in fact, the works in this book are pretty irrefutable evidence of your actual relationship with God. It will show. 
The other option, the second option for judgment, for sin, is that your sin can be judged on the cross of Christ. He endured God's wrath and fury so that you and I wouldn't have to. I mean, literally, God poured out his fury and wrath against sin onto our substitute, Jesus, on that cross. It was unleashed on him so that when you trust in him, all of that judgment is used up. There's none left, ever, none. It was all on Jesus. He suffered your penalty. He suffered your pain. Everything that should have been due to you and me because of our sin, he bore that. So that if you believe that for yourself, your name is in the book of life. And friends, yeah, this is the final word on sin. That is, that is good news, despite the fact that we're talking about judgment and sin and what is to come. It is good news. Your sin will be judged one way or the other, either on the cross of Christ or before that judgment seat. There is one more way that Jesus has the final word, that he puts an end to evil. So we've talked about the devil We've talked about sin and how that's judged, but we jumped over verse 14 and the fact that death itself is destroyed. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. The certainty of death. You probably know the quote attributed to the great American statesman, Benjamin Franklin, there is nothing certain in life except Death and taxes. Death and taxes. And all the IRS people said amen. But this proverb affirms the reality. Like we know it's coming, right? Things creak a bit more. They hurt. So we know that this is coming. And yet every generation there's been this idea of like, let's prolong our life as long as we can. Vitality. Let's, let's put that off, even though it's coming. Now, if God is truly to make all things new, if he's to do the process of recreation and undoing all the brokenness and depravity, then he has to do something about death. Because death was never there in the first place. Do you remember the restrictions on Adam and Eve? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat it. Because if you do, your eyes will be opened and the consequence will be death. New concept to them. Nothing was dying in Eden. Now, God graciously spared their life on that particular day when they rebelled. They, he didn't wipe them off the face of the earth. But he did tell them in Genesis 3.19, from dust you came to dust you will return. You will die because of this. Sadly, because of their rebellion, he couldn't let them live in paradise because also in paradise was the tree of life. And if they reached out and they ate of the fruit of the tree of life, they would live forever. And God was too gracious, too kind than to let them experience that, living in rebellion and sin and living forever. And so he removed them from his paradise and tragically from his presence and continue through the pages of Scripture. And this, this is the story 
of humankind knowing that we're not with our maker, knowing that something is wrong. And scripture affirms death as an enemy. Paul calls it the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, he calls it the, the last enemy that has to be destroyed is death. Now, last week, you remember we read about the martyrs who were beheaded, their witness of Christ. They led to their gruesome death. Our physical death is a reality. It's a coming reality. But it is not neutral or a blessing. It's the enemy. I don't have any grandparents left on this earth. I was one of the privileged ones who got to know my grandparents at some stage in my life before they all passed. And I wish to this day that they were still here. They didn't know my kids. They didn't get to see what I get to do vocationally. I long to sit at their feet and to gain their wisdom and my kids to hear from them and hear stories. Like, that's just, it's painful. Like, I feel that. It's painful. And honestly, I dread the day that my parents, my wife's parents, are with us no more. That is a painful thing, which we've all experienced some measure of the pain and the sting of death. And though there's hope, because all of my grandparents and all of our parents and our family, their names are written in the book of life. So that's really hope-filled and helpful. But it doesn't negate the fact that it hurts, that it's wrong. Death is wrong. So how does verse 14 help me? How does it help you? Death is no more. God doesn't surrender. He doesn't make a deal. He doesn't let up. He doesn't come to terms with the enemy. He kills it. Death is destroyed. Never again after this point, never again will his people have to experience the threat or the fear of death. Only life. They only know life in God's presence. Woo, that's good news. So the picture that John has been painting for us here in Revelation 20 is to set up his making everything new. As a family, we have, uh, even before our kids were born, we have loved Sally Lloyd-Jones's Jesus Storybook Bible. I've referenced it in numerous sermons because her, the way she tells a story of the, of the biblical narrative is just so helpful. And here's this paragraph from her uh, from her story from the book of Revelation. I'll read it and put it on the screen. One day, John knew, heaven would come down and mend God's broken world and make it our true perfect home once again. And he knew in some mysterious way that would be hard to explain that everything was going to be more wonderful for once having been so sad. And he knew that the ending of the story was going to be so great it would make all the sadness and tears and everything seem like just a shadow that's chased away by the morning sun. What a vision for us to come, brothers and sisters, for us to have courage and hope. So a couple closing thoughts for us as we look forward to this reality and the victory. We sang about it. We've talked about it. I believe I will see the goodness of God was one of the, the lines from the song. So we have great victory and hope and therefore we can praise God and I'm not saying trite I'm saying this in a flippant way but in the midst of our struggle and strife and tribulation and trial and hurt and pain and all those things we actually can praise God because we know what's coming 
we know that he wins. We know he gets the last word over evil in our world, over evil in our life. Everything sad comes untrue. Tolkien wrote that. We will enjoy God and his presence forever. So until then, friends, stand firm and persevere. Keep your eyes on him. But secondly, if this passage doesn't motivate us toward mission, I don't know what will. Honestly, verse 15 is a sobering reminder of what is coming for the people who do not know Christ. I found these words of challenge this week, and I'll, I'll put it up. The Christian response to this passage in particular cannot be numbness or worse, smug relief that we won't face the sting. It must be dedication to God's business instead of our comfort and safety and to sacrificial and humble outreach toward those who need to hear the good news of God's gracious salvation in Christ. So again, so long as we live, God calls us to know Christ, to make him known, to live and declare with our lives and our voices, Jesus changes lives. He changed mine. Let me tell you about it. If you're in the sound of my voice and your name isn't in the book of life or you don't know if it's in the book of life, if you're hearing all of this and you haven't believed in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, let me tell you briefly about him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He willingly and with joy stepped away from heaven. He came to earth and he lived as a human, like human body like you and me and he experienced all of this stuff save one thing sin he never knew sin he was perfect which enabled him his whole mission of coming to earth was that he would be the sin substitute for people the only one who could actually do that because of his divinity and because of his perfection and his humanity and so he was on that cross he experienced the wrath the fury of God for pretty messed up people. He died bearing the penalty. He was buried, but the first act of victory here is that he rose again, and he is dead no more, and he is on the march, he is on the move to fulfill what Revelation talks about, and he offers salvation by his name to every man and woman and boy and girl who wants it, whoever will may come. If you don't know it, I invite you to it today because he would want you to be in his family. He would want to save you. That is why Jesus came. And so God, here we are feeling the tension of a passage like this. You're so good. You're so righteous and glorious. We trust you and yet it's hard. It's hard for us to think about what is coming the judgment that's coming for people. And so we submit ourselves to you and your ways because you know more than we do, but we are so thankful for the victory that we have in Christ. For those of us who are in Christ, we're new creations. Thank you that we get to with joy sing songs of victory like we will in just a moment to lift you up your name, to praise you. But Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do a work this morning. I believe that there is someone here this morning who needs the life-changing transformation that comes 
through faith in Christ. And so would you do that even this morning for your glory? Would you bring and save someone from death, bring them from death to life through your word? We love you. In Jesus' name we pray with thanksgiving. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.